Take that Bible. Look back to 1 John. I just want to wrap that section up with you. Hey, did we take the offering today? We did? Oh, I must have been over there. Um, 1 John chapter 2. I mean, Tom came on staff. I wanted to make sure that we had it covered. Um, 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. Let me read the text. We're just wrapping this section up. I'd probably tell you I almost felt finished last week, and usually I won't go this slow on a section, but I, I just had a little bit more in me in this text that I wanted to bring to you. I think this will be somewhat, um, I, I want to say, applicational to you as I've laid down the doctrine of it and uh, want to give you some of the implications for our life. But follow with me as I read from 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and it's the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What a tremendous, tremendous passage. Do not love the world. Now, often in this passage, there are some who misconstrue what worldliness actually is. I mean, it seems that some can go either to one or two different extremes. I mean, either we ignore John's teaching to not love the world, and by that thought, we compromise with the world, or the other extreme in this type of teaching is one can become a legalist, right? One can become a legalist on how they might define what the world is. What legalism does is it makes one think that God accepts them on the basis of what they do, and that would either be for salvation or for sanctification as we become more like Christ. And what legalism does is erects a standard of conduct that actually goes beyond the teaching of Scripture. It creates, does legalism, personal convictions for yourself in areas that are not specifically addressed in the Word of God, which is fine for you, but as soon as you elevate your personal convictions to the same authority of the Scripture, you become a legalist. And the Pharisees were professional at it. You begin to judge others because they are not holding to your personal convictions. Jerry Bridges, a, a brilliant writer, one of my favorite, said this about legalism. He said, legalism is a class of people who have come to be known as controllers. These are people who are not willing to let you live your life before God as you believe He is leading you. They have all the issues buttoned down and have cast iron opinions about all of them. They only know, Bridges said, black and white. There are no gray areas to them. And they insist that you live your Christian life according to their rules and their opinions. And if you insist on being free to live as God wants you to live, they will try to intimidate you and manipulate you one way or another. And he said their primary weapons are guilt trips, rejection, or gossip. And Bridges said quite strongly, these people must be, he said, resisted. And so I ask you this morning as we embark on this, are you a legalist? Are you guilty? And I'm thinking, are you a legalist? Because in some way, we've defined worldliness as this. And yet it's not bound in the Scripture. And so are you guilty of adding God's Word or promoting certain standards to a level of Christianity which the Bible never directly sets forth? I've kept in one of my files over the years a number of things that I've heard spoken or in print by people, and I'll share some of these with you, okay? And some of them are old, but that's part of the point is they're a little old and it changes with time. I've heard people say, don't ever take classes from a secular university. Have you heard that one? It's worldly. I've heard people say, don't drink coffee. But in my mind, but Coca-Cola is okay. I don't, I don't know. 
I've heard people say, don't read any translations of the Bible except the KJV. I've heard people say, don't marry anyone or someone of a different race. All those things are not bound up in the Scripture. I've heard people say that an an innocent woman divorced by an adulterous, unfaithful spouse may never remarry. I'd call that legalism. I don't find that in the Scripture. Or somebody had said, don't ever show affection or kiss your fiancé until after you get married. Certainly that's not bad advice, but not chapter and verse on that one. I've heard people say, don't allow guitars or drums in the Sunday service. I've heard people say that spiritual people don't listen to rock music or rock Christian music. Maybe I should add country western music in there. I knew of one woman who was an elderly grandmother years ago who thought Keith Green was out of the pit of hell. Do you remember Keith Green? And I'm thinking, man, Keith Green was mild compared to some of these Christian bands. But she thought, oh, no, Keith Green is, you know, he's bad, you know. I've heard people say that spiritual couples do not practice artificial birth control. I've heard people say that spiritual people don't play card games. But some like to play Uno and Trivial Pursuit, and I'm not sure what the difference is. I've heard people say that spiritual people never read novels, but you have, on the other hand, no problem watching Oprah or listening to Dr. Laura. You see how this kind of goes. Spiritual people don't wear any makeup. Spiritual people don't wear any jewelry. Spiritual people don't ever get their hair done. Spiritual people don't attend movies. Spiritual people don't attend the theater, but you have no problem attending a sporting event with beer, marijuana, and sleazy halftime entertainment. You see, how how do we look at this thing? Spiritual people never buy anything on credit, but you'll sign your name to a 30-year house mortgage. Churches should never go into debt, but you have no problem doing that in your own personal family. And all these things come under this banner in some way of either the extreme of compromising with the world or going so far the other way that we become a legalist. Now, John obviously is not talking about that. Look to the text again in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. There were two points here, right? He lays out one huge command, and then secondly, that command is bolstered by two incentives for the believer to not love the world. The huge command, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. That is the command. And we took some time, did we not? And we just touched on it to to define what is the world. When John said, do not love the world, and we most certainly said, number one, he's not talking about the creation, right? Because the heavens, Psalm 19, are declaring the glory of God. After he finished the creation, he said, it is very good. So when he says, do not love the world, he's not talking about the physical world world in which we live. In fact, it would be true that just the opposite, we should give glory to God when we see uh, uh, something pretty, when we see a beautiful sunset, when we see a, a beautiful scene. Our hearts, more than anybody, should be able to give praise to God. So John's not talking about loving the physical world and not loving the physical word, world. Excuse me. Secondly, we said that he's also not talking about the human race. Remember, when he says do not love the world, he's not talking about the human race as a class of people, okay? He's taught because it says John 3, 16, for God so loved the what? The world. And world there is just a designation in scripture to speak of the people who make up the world in which he made. That's not what John's talking about. Remember, thirdly, this is what we said the world was. It was the evil system. That the world, that Greek word cosmos, spoke of an evil system that is anti-God, that is anti-Christ, that is opposed to God and opposed to everything that he stands for. It's much more than just something physical in the world, what you do with your clothes or your hair or that kind of stuff. It's something internal. It's an evil, in the scripture, wicked system that is opposed to God. So the huge command that he laid out for us is for you, for me, at Grace Church of the Valley. We are not to love the world. Then secondly, remember, he bolstered that by two, by two incentives. He said, number one, the world is incompatible with loving God. Look at verse 15. He said, if anyone loves the world, the love 
of the Father is not in him. Because he said, all that is in the world, and then remember he defined the world there. Look at verse 16. Here's how he defined that system, or at least described that system. He called it the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. And and that's where legalism falls short. Legalism often looks externally. When John begins to unpack the world for us, he's talking about an organization, a system of evil that actually pries first in our desires. And so here he says when he describes that this world is incompatible with loving God, he said the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father And uh, if you love them, you don't follow that because you love God. But we left off there at the second incentive, and this is where we want to focus. He said, and the world is passing away. Here's a second incentive. Along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, I want you to see this link here. If you look back in verse 16, where he speaks of that third category, he calls it the pride in possessions. And then he says in 17, and the world is passing away. In other words, the reason, here's the point John's making, that you, that I as a group of believers, as a church, should not love the world is this incentive is that the world is passing away. This world in which you are living will not last forever. In fact, you'll note the language again. Look at verse 17. The world is passing away. In other words, what John is describing here is that it's already in the process, not of evolution, but devolution. This physical world in which we live is passing away. In other words, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in possessions will not last forever. It's in the process of devolution. You know, when you think about it, I just want to encourage you today. I mean, not only is the world passing away, but so are what? We, at least in this physical body in which we live. And John's just really kind of compelling us. Listen, Grace Church, don't love the world. Right, Because if, if anyone loves the world with an affection, then the love of the Father is not in him. And he says to us, don't love the world, and here's why. Because what you're living in and what you're experiencing in this world, in this life, is, is passing away, but so are we. And you know, there's these metaphors in Scripture, and you know this, and I just want to remind you of this. Remember in James it says that you are just a vapor. That's your life. That appears for a little while and then what? Vanishes away. Your life is a vapor. What James says is it's just a breath. It's like a breath on a cold day. I love those old, uh, those old videos of the NFL football games when they'd show the old Green Bay Packers lining up in Lambeau Stadium and they'd get down on all fours and it'd go into slow motion and then that guy's voice would come over and then they went back. And, you know, and then you'd see those guys just breathing. And as they, breathe, as, as they would breathe, you would see that mist. And then it would go. That mist come out. And then it would go. That's what James says our life is like. Our life, listen, is just a vapor. You don't want to get locked up here and now, do you? This world in which you live is just passing away. And the truth is, our life in that sense is just a vapor. In fact, when I looked in Scripture... There are at least, and there's, I'm sure there's more, at least 18 metaphors in the Bible that express the brevity of human life. And I'm thinking of this if you want to write it down. It's Psalm 103, verse 15. There the psalmist said this, As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. But when the wind has passed over it, It is no more. Listen, our days are like grass. As a flower of the field, it it flourishes. But when the wind comes, it's passed over and it's no more. Job put it this way in Job 7, 6. 
He said, remember that my life is but a breath. That's what Job said. It's just a breath. So, and he, Job said in 8 9, for we are only of yesterday, Job said, and know nothing because our days on earth are as a shadow. So you got, we're a vapor, we're a breath, we're a shadow, we're like grass. I mean, it's amazing how quick it goes. Job said this in 14.1 of Job, man born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. And like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. This is our life. Listen, do you really want to get locked up here? Listen, the, the world's passing away, but even our life is just so short. David put it this way in 1 Chronicles 29, 15, for we are sojourners and our days on earth are like a shadow. It's just fleeting. In fact, you remember when the psalmist prayed this in Psalm 39, verse 4? And by the way, if you don't get all of these, you could always email, and I'll just give you all my notes, okay? So, but the psalmist said this in 39.4, Lord, make me to know my, what? My end. And what is the extent of my days? The psalmist said this in 39, let me know how transient I am. He said, behold, thou hast made my days as hand breaths, and my lifetime as nothing, and he said, in thy sight, surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. The psalmist said, he amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. I mean, it's just so short. I mean, you don't want to get locked up on this, do you? I don't. I mean, frankly, to be honest with you, I'm not trying to be legalist because there's great things about the Olympics, but did you see the opening ceremony? There you go. There's a picture of the world right there. Not so much the beginning with the pastoral, the children singing, but when they got to the 70s and the 80s, I thought, there you go. That's the system right there. They're just living out what life is like. Listen, I'm going to last forever. You're not going to keep going on. We're going to have a time. If you ask me about my dad, he'll be 79 next week. But he knows the Lord. He's going to go on. But this life isn't everything, is it, you know? Every man at best, the psalmist said in 39, is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a, fountain, as a phantom. David said in Psalm 90, verse 10, you know this scripture, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. You know that one. And then David said this, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Okay? Now, now, this is just biblical worldview, is it not? Biblical worldview says, I'm thinking of the, of the, um, the commercial when I grew up many years ago where it said, you only live once in life, so go for the what? Gusto. I mean, go grab a beer. Really? Man, I can take you down to Skid Row. I've been down to Skid Row many times in L.A. And I've had to confront people who were junk. Really, you only go for live once in life, so go for the gusto? Listen, all of us live again. Listen, you parents need to teach your children, my children, as we do this kind of stuff. We don't last forever. I mean, I, that's what he says. For soon it is gone and we fly away. My dad used to just keep saying to me, Scott, what happened? You were just 20 a few years ago. I said, I know, and you were a young man a few years ago, you know. Does it, for you who are older this morning, does it not just go really quick? I mean, our prayer should be the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our, what? Days. Not number our years. He said there, teach us, did Moses, even though it's in the Psalm, to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. So I think what John is saying to us, listen, you can't love the world. It's incompatible with loving God. And, another, and, and also, you don't want to love the world because it's passing away. You know, they, they said that long ago, and I don't know if we should do this, but it's a thought, that when an emperor was crowned at Constantinople, 
that a mason, a royal mason would come in and they would lift this new emperor up and they would come in before his majesty and bring with them a certain number of marble slabs. And right there as the emperor would be crowned, he was then and there to choose one of those slabs for his tombstone because the ancients thought that it was wise for him to remember his funeral at the time of the elevation for his life would not last forever. And perhaps this would be a profitable ceremony after a high school graduation for students in the best of health to see how short their life might be. That might sound a little morbid, but can you imagine some of our high school students who graduate? Dad, what'd you get me? Well, I got you this tombstone right here. And I wrote it on you here that you became a man of God. Well, Dad, I haven't even lived. No, no, I want you to get ready because one day you won't be forever. You know, I just think sometimes we just think we got it all. I remember my dad used to tell me often growing up on the beach of Santa Monica, fighting people right and left, and that he just said, Scott, I thought I had nine lives. I thought nothing could happen to me. I thought I was, you know, indestructible. And in one sense, he, he might have been, but then he came to Christ and he saw how foolish he was. I mean, this world is passing away. Remember Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his what? His soul. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? I mean, is anything worth more than the soul? And even if you own the world, you could not buy back your soul. You know, maybe some of you haven't followed. I've followed a little bit. I'm thinking of the Paterno scandal. Have you seen some of that? Very interesting week. I mean, you think of Joe Paterno, for some of you who haven't been following it, because sometimes, you know, we always illustrate out of our background, and because I'm an athlete, I tend to illustrate that way, but I realize half of you are not athletes, but that's the great football player. Not football player, the coach, right? You'd say, well, what, what kind of coach is he? Well, he's the coach with the most wins ever, 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 ever in the history of football until the allegations and the criminal charges came against one of his coaches. And so they stripped Paterno of his coaching position. You might remember that back in November. And then in the trial a couple of weeks ago, they stripped him of all of his wins since 1998. So instead of going from the number one winningest coach of all time, Joe Paterno at Penn State, they stripped them of the wins back to 1998, which I think put them on the all-time list now at 12. Then in addition to that, they had his statute taken away from the front of Penn State Stadium. And as I thought about it, everybody feels a sense of justice, but listen, that's nothing compared to 7 billion people standing before the Lord, right? I mean, it's easy to begin to play that game and put that on him, but the truth is, everyone will stand before him. And then the facts will all be known before a holy God. And then it's not just paternal. What does it profit anybody if they gain the whole world and forfeit what? Their soul. So I think John's just reasoning us with us. Listen, it's incompatible with loving God, but this world is passing away. I'm thinking of the most famous living author. You might not have heard of him. In the 1930s, his name was William Somerset Mon. Short, they just called him Willie. And he was an accomplished novelist. He was a playwright. He, wrote, he was a short story writer. He wrote a novel called Of Human Bondage, and it's a classic. And his play called The Constant Wife had gone through thousands of staging and Willie was a man who lived for his own refined taste, his comfort, and even his sexual perversions. In 1965, at the age of 91, he was still a very fabulously rich man, his biographer said. He still received, imagine this, over 300 letters a week from his fans. But I read an article that said, but in the end, what did he really get? Because the London Times carried an excerpt by his nephew. His nephew's name was Robin Mon. And here's what Robin said about Willie. He said, I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and the pictures and the objects of Willie's success that enabled him to acquire. 
And I remembered that the villa itself had a wonderful garden, and I could see through the windows a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, Robin Mon said, worth millions. Willie had 11 servants, including a cook named Annette, who was the envy of all the millionaires on the Riviera. Willie dined off silver plates. He was waited on by a guy by the name of Marius, who was his butler, and Henry, who was his footman. And then Robin said the following afternoon, many years ago, he said, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible. And he looked horrible, his nephew said. His face was grim. And Willie said this, I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across the quotation, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Willie said this, I must tell you, my dear Robin, that text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Then Willie said, of course, it's all a lot of bunk, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. End of quote. I'll tell you this, he doesn't think it's a lot of bunk right now, does he? I mean, however he wanted to live, when he passed away in the late 60s or the early 70s, he stood before his maker. And everything he owned, he couldn't take with him. He couldn't take the Mediterranean Sea with him. He couldn't take his, his, uh, his uh, chef with him. He couldn't take his butler with him. He couldn't take his books with him. He couldn't take his plays with him. He stood before the Lord, and it's, it's not a lot of bunk at all. Listen, so John just says, listen, are you crazy? Are you living for this stuff? He says to us in John 2, 17, the world is passing away. In fact, did you know that 180 years after the death of Charlemagne, probably around the year 1000 AD, emperors of the emperor Ortho opened the great king's tomb, Charlemagne's tomb, where they found an amazing sight apart from the treasure. What they saw there in Charlemagne's tomb was the skeleton remains of a king seated on the throne a crown that was still upon his skull, a copy of the gospel, picture this, laying in his lap and a bony finger resting on this text. The text is, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I mean, you could be the king in all your glory, sitting on a throne with your crown and all your entourage around you. But listen, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Dave Harvey, in one of his writings, cites that on November 26th, do you remember this? 1922, a man by the name of Howard Carter made an archaeological history by unearthing the tomb of King trying to get his name right, to Tankhamen, <laughs> we would know him as King what? King Tut, 1922. And it was an extraordinary discovery made more remarkable because the tomb actually contained most of its treasures inside it. And filling the burial chamber were dismantled chariots, gilded figures, thrones. I mean, everything that a king would need for support for him in the afterlife. But the truth is, King Tut was a fool. I mean, he thought that he could keep the stuff that mattered to him wrong, wrong. King Tut left the building, and yet his stuff remains. And it's on a perpetual tour now, like a 70s classic rock band, and they show this stuff all over the place. Listen, you can't take it with you. You know that. The world is just passing away. In fact, in the language... It's already in the process. In fact, look in your Bible back at 1 John 2, 8. When, when John said, at the same time, this is a new commandment I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because, John said this, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already, what? Shining. In other words, in the, when Christ came, he became the light of the world and that light has already went into the darkness, and one day that light will pervade over all. I'm thinking of James when he said to the rich unbelievers, he said this to them, your riches have rotted, your garments 
have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. He said, their rust, scary, will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. James said in chapter 5, it is the last day that you have stored up your treasure. Listen, the, the world is huh, it's just passing away. Only one life. You know that little stanza? Will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will what? Last. Listen. Listen, believer, don't live for this stuff. Don't, and I don't mean to be rude on the Olympics, but it's kind of like, really? Really? Is that is, is part of it? I mean, is that really what it's all about? Oh, no, no, no. You say, but Scott, does, does anything live forever? Does anything last forever? The answer is yes. Look at 1 John 2, 17. Look at it again. The world is passing away along with its desires, and that would be the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of possessions. But what a contrast. Whoever does the will of God abides, what? Forever. Let me just focus on that first phrase. Whoever does the will of God. And does there, again, is in the present tense, describing the consistent practice of obeying God's will. Actively, if you will. Uh, present tense, doing the will of God. Now, certainly here, when he talks about, just to help us, when he says, whoever does the will of God, I want you to think of the will of God in this context as obeying the commands of God, okay? In fact, look back at chapter 2 in verse 4, where it says, where John says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God has or is perfected. So when he says here in 2.17, whoever does the will of God, that would be loving God, obeying his commands. Certainly in this context, I would think it would include, would you not, verse 10 that whoever, chapter 2, verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the, what? Lights. Loving God, loving people, doing the will of God, it says there. Now, in this context, doing the will of God is the exact opposite of loving the world and the things of the world. I mean, when you become a Christian, you don't want to love that system. You, you don't want to love the things of the world because you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and you want to make your life count for the kingdom. And so now instead of loving sin, you now want to obey Him and walk in the Spirit. Now, we don't have time to unpack this all, but all of this ideal of doing the will of God in the Gospels, at least recorded by John, who did the will of God perfectly? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? I'm thinking of when Jesus said this in John 4, that my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Jesus said, my mission in life is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus said in John 5.30, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's the heart of a believer. That's the heart of Jesus. And we ought to be like him in 1 John 2.6. It says in John 6, 38, that I have come down out of heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So when Christ came in his humanness, his mission was to do the will of the Father who sent him. And as we become born again, he changes our hearts so that instead of loving the world, our whole desire is to do the will of God. Let me show you that. I'm thinking of that phrase there, but whoever does the will of God. Look over at Matthew for a second. Let me show you this. There's a few texts I want to take you to, and I think this is familiar. And I think what John is talking about here is he's just talking about the life of a believer. We don't want to get sucked up in the world. Our passion, not with perfection, but with consistency, is to do His will. Remember this in Matthew 7, certainly verse 21. Not... 721, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven, excuse me. But the one who, what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven, okay? So, so the point is, you can't just claim Christ. You can't just say, Lord, Lord, and enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said here by his own authority, it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So the believer here, it would be crazy to love the world. It's incompatible with loving God and it's passing away. And besides the one who obeys God, here is the one who truly knows God. Glance down at Matthew 7, verse 24, where Jesus said, you know this one, to build your house on the rock, where he said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and what? does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Listen, to do the will of God is to hear His words and to act upon them. Look over just one second in James. Will you go back there in the book of James? I think you know this text, but I'm just thinking it's not just the apostle John who speaks of doing the will. A lot of the writers do. You remember that? And certainly in James 1, in verse 22, you know this one. But be, what does he say? Doers of the word and not merely, or not hearers only, deceiving themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror And he looks at himself, he's gone away and forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, that's the scripture, the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, I love this phrase, but a doer who, what? Acts. He will be blessed in his doing. Now look back just at 1 John for a second. 1 John chapter 2. You say, well, okay, if the world's passing away, (laughs) along with its desires, and I do the will of God, I obey the commandments of God, what's held out for me? Look at it in verse 17. Whoever does the will of God abides, how long? Forever. I mean, just let that sink into you just for a second. You're saying, well, Scott, yeah, I'm kind of walking the narrow road and I've kind of made choices with my family and with my finances and my extended family who now persecutes me and doesn't understand me. And, you know, the money I give to the church, I'm tithing, but what what do you get? Well, look what it says, that whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here's what John is saying. The system, the world, is doomed. It's passing away. But you, as you obey the commandments of God, live forever. And all I can say is, how cool is that? Listen, remember what Eliot used to say? You remember that great quote that he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot what? Lose. You're not a fool. You're you're the smartest person. You're not a fool. God's redeemed you. You're obeying God. You don't want to please people. You don't want to be a people pleaser. You don't want to fall in with the crowd. No, your heart wants to please them. Your heart wants to obey them. You elderly saints who are with us, I want you to know how much you minister to my heart. Because when I meet some of you, I think, man, that's what I want to be like when I'm 70. That's what I want to be like when I'm 80 and I see your love for God. Listen, whoever does, the will of God abides forever. Look over just for a moment in the Gospel of John. Let this truth sink in. Let the world fade. Let the Olympics 
uh, take it in the right spirit. Let it fade. I mean, you're not going to stand before God with a gold medal and say, see all my gold medals. Because it won't matter in that day. It won't matter how many medals you've won. It won't matter if you're Willie Mon. It won't matter if you're Christy Walton from the Walmart family who's worth $26 billion. It won't matter on that day if you're Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook and you're in your 20s and you're worth $17 billion. It won't matter on that day if you're Phil Knight without the Lord, the creator of Nike, who's worth $14 billion and you don't know the Lord. Listen, the promise to you is this. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. We're not saved by our works. You know what this is talking about. This is the heart of a believer who says, this world is not my, what, home. I'm just passing through. I'm a sojourner. I'm an alien. I'm not putting all my stock right here. I mean, look at these scriptures. Follow with me in John 3, 16. You know these, some of them well. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not, what? perish but have what eternal life are you kidding me eternal life that's you in christ jesus he died on the cross for you look over at john chapter 4 certainly you remember this at the woman of the well when jesus said to her whoever drinks of the water in 414 that i will give him will never be thirsty again And the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to what? Eternal life. He gives that. You can't buy that in the world. Look at John chapter 5. Just turn over the next chapter. 5 and verse 24. One of my favorite scriptures. Jesus said in 524, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, what? Eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to, what? Life. Listen, the world doesn't have anything on us. It's fleeting, okay? We're not going to last forever in this physical body, but when you trust Christ spiritually, he'll give you a new body, and then it says right there in 24, you've passed from death to life. Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 47 and these great statements when he says there in 47, 647, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has what? Eternal life. Listen, you can't buy that. You've got to come to the end of yourself, right? But whoever believes in him believes, not does something, trust leans on Christ, has eternal life. Glance down at chapter chapter 6 in verse, where was it, 51, where he said to Jesus, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live, what? Forever. Glance down at John chapter 6, verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live, what? Forever. I mean, you can you just keep going with this, you know? Look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10, just a couple more. I'm thinking of this, you'll abide forever, you'll remain forever. John chapter 10, in that classic statement in 1027, that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I love this. I give them eternal life and they will never, what? Perish. Listen, the one who does the will of God abides, what? Forever. You know, um, I was just thinking about this. I hope this is appropriate. When I was playing basketball at a junior college, I'd look at the guys on my team, and I was a believer, and I'd try to witness to them and share with them and live my faith before them. Um, 
And I'd watch them, and they'd watch me real careful. They'd watch my life. They had certain goals for me on our weekend road trips. But they could never phase me. They wanted me to get drunk with them. They wanted to introduce me to their girlfriends. They, they wanted me to, to go to their parties with them. But you know what? I'd look at them. I'd watch them. I'd observe them. And I'd see shallowness all over the place. And I'd see no joy all over the place. And I'd see no happiness all over the place. And I'd watch them rotate from one girlfriend to the next girlfriend to the next girlfriend to one kegging party to the next kegging party to the next kegging party. And the thing they couldn't explain on me is I was happy. (laughs) I was happy because I knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the world doesn't have anything on you, does it? You have eternal life. You believe in Christ. You will never perish. He will give you life indeed. That's what it says there in John. Look at one more in John chapter 11. Almost finished in verse 25. I love this statement. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he, what? Live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never, what? Die. And then I love this statement, the last phrase. Do you believe this? Oh, I believe that. You say, are you worried about your dad? No, I'm not worried about my dad. One second. Because when he closes his eyes in this life, he will awake where? In glory. Because you should have seen my dad's life before he came to Christ. And he's a believer. He's got his sins forgiven. Oh, his health is bad. Oh, his heart is bad. His blood pressure is bad. They cut off part of his leg. Then they cut off another part of his leg. The guy's just physically falling apart. But listen, he gets eternal life. And a life that will never perish. And that's held out to all of you who have put your trust in Christ. You say, okay, Scott, what should I do now then? Fair? You might be sitting there, okay, what do you want? How do, what do I do with my stuff then? I mean, if this is passing away, then Jesus would say this, store up for yourselves treasures in where? Heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where a thief cannot break in and what? Steal. I mean, listen, nothing can destroy a heavenly treasure. Moss cannot eat it. Rust cannot wear it away. A thief cannot steal it. Fire cannot destroy it. I mean, if heavenly treasure is indestructible against the elements of inflation, against the elements of economic depression, you say, well, Scott, what's a heavenly treasure? It's the things that are eternal. It's eternal life. We possess an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, Peter said, reserved in heaven for you. You say, but Scott, how do I lay up treasure? If I'm not to love the world, can you tell me something that I am to do? Yeah. Let, let, me, let me just suggest three things for you, okay? Because some of you will say, well, what's my takeaway? I have eternal life. But what do I do in light of a world that's passing away? Me doing the will of God, abiding forever. How can I make my life count? Number one, Set your mind on the things above, right? Set your mind on the things above. And I'm thinking of Paul in Colossians. If you then have been raised up with Christ, seek the things where? Above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And when Christ appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Let me just ask you, where do you spend your time thinking? What do you spend it thinking about? Where's your energies go, Dad? So I don't know, I'm working. Well, then you better get to our men's Bible study and start rolling up the scriptures with us and getting in the Word of God so you can pass that on. But listen, you know, we got to think on the things above. Secondly, I would say this. You need to, in light of this teaching, to give generously to the Lord's work. I mean, if you want to, this may sound a little funny, if you want to kill a covetous heart, then give generously. You say, well, Scott, I thought the Lord loves a cheerful giver and I'm not a cheerful giver, so I'm not going to give. 
No, 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 no. If you want to kill a covetous heart, then give generously. And I'm thinking of what Paul told Timothy, and you can put all of us in this picture when he said, instruct those who are rich in this present world. And let me just put it, you say, well, I'm not rich. Oh, no, no, no. Huh, you're rich. You drive a car, you have a car, you got a cell phone, you got more than one change of clothes, you're rich. All you have to do is travel to other parts of the world. You'll understand that you're not just middle class or lower middle class or I might, no, 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 no. From what I've seen, you're rich. So Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who supplies us with all things to enjoy. And then Paul told Timothy to tell us, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for a future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Listen, set your mind on the things above. Give generously, okay? And thirdly, I'd say this to you. You need to invest in people. People, I'm trying to think, what's going to last forever? Not the world. God's going to last forever. What else is going to last forever? His word's going to last forever. And there's only one other thing I think that lasts forever. is people, whether they're here or whether they go to hell, they're going to last forever. So Jesus said this in Luke 16, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Luke 16, 9. Invest in people. You say, well, Scott, I'm not quite sure. Well, then let's, let's begin. Let, let's begin somewhere. Get somebody in your life. Ask them how to help with that. Jesus said in Luke 12, sell your possessions, give to charity, Make for yourselves money belts which do not wear out an unfading or unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near or moth destroy. You say, well, Scott, who can I look to in this? Just this, remember this. Go back to the cross. Because if you see the precious Lord Jesus Christ dying for your sins, and lifting you to give you eternal life, then listen, you'll want to set your mind on the things above. You'll want to give generously, and you'll want to invest in people.